0: Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So my guest today is Jesse McDougall, who, with his wife Caroline, own and operates Studio Hill. This is a regenerative farm based in southern Vermont in the U.S. Uh, Good to have you here, Jesse. My understanding is that you did not start out as a farmer and that you kind of fell into this or grew into it. uh, Um, could you tell us a little bit about, about how that all happens?
1: Uh, sure. Well, I didn't grow up farming at all. I grew up in the mountains where everything I ever ate came in on a truck or, um, through the drive-through window. I didn't grow up thinking about, uh, health at all or food or nutrition or soil for, you know, least of all. Um, it just happened that I fell in love with a girl who had a farm, and she was the, um, her great-grandparents purchased a farm in southern Vermont just after the, where at the tail end of the Great Depression. Um, their reasoning was they were so frightened by the, f- uh, fragilities exposed during the Great Depression in the food system that... They thought owning land was the only way to have food security for themselves and their family down the road. So my wife was fourth generation of the farm, and um, the woman who had been running it for 40 years, her aunt, um, was diagnosed with glioblastoma, uh, an aggressive form of brain cancer, in 2011. And it was then that my wife and I, who were living not too far away from the farm, decided to come down to the farm and... Do whatever we could to help out. And when she passed away, um, my wife's aunt passed away in 2012. Um, there was some discussion about what to do with the farm. Everything was on the table, and um, including selling the land. And my wife and I looked at each other for about half a second and said, "Let's let's give it a shot." So we sold. We were web designers at the time. We sold our web business and. Uh, without knowing very much at all, took on this 275-acre farm. Um, and it has proceeded over the next five years, or proceeded over the next five years, to give us a brutal education. And, and we've enjoyed every minute of it.
0: So you, I know when we talked before, you had mentioned uh, something about uh, the first crop not doing anything. and
1: uh, Right. Well, that was our. No, that's exactly right. So, um, after we spent 2011 and 2012 um, um, helping as much as we could with my wife's Aunt Edie and her cancer, Um, she actually passed away five years ago tomorrow. Um, We were so shaken by that experience that our first decision as farmers was to stop spraying any and all chemicals on the farm. We stopped spraying synthetic fertilizers, um, herbicides, pesticides, any and everything, thinking that we would clean up the farm. We quote unquote go organic. And um, you know, we couldn't make any connection between the cancer and the chemicals, but you know, this stuff is, some of this stuff is banned in Europe as a, as a, carcinogen um so we thought let's just do everything we can i mean uh to clean up everything and um as a result of that decision nothing grew the following spring um because the fields hadn't been fertilized um the that what we thought was going to be lush, abundant, green, organic, natural grass growing turned out to be um, gravel <laughs> uh, and patchy grass. And um, we didn't know what we'd done wrong. We ran out into the fields, excited that spring, and, and were devastated to find that um, these fields that we had come to know as lush green fields were um, no longer able to produce anything. And it didn't dawn on us until much later after much reading and research and panic that um, what we were seeing when we rushed out into that field, that spring was not a result of our decision directly. It was our decision had revealed the true health of the soil as it had been for decades and the tilling and spraying and um, leaving, you know, fallow fields, that treatment had, Um, robbed the soil or, or depleted the soil, I should say, of organic matter and carbon and anything that would feed the microbiological communities in the soil, plus anything that was left was sprayed to death with the pesticides and herbicides. So the soil was biologically unable to sustain grass. And it was dead it was dead. There was no life in it. You know, I didn't notice it at the time, not being a farmer, I didn't look for these things, but, um, there were no crickets. There were no spiders. There were no beetles in, in the fields, whether they were hay or corn, um, because there's no life in the soil. There's nothing there for them to eat. And so, uh, we lost that crop, uh, that year. Um, we bailed what we could and it was terrible. And, um, we went around and around and around about how to um, manage eighty. Well, we have eighty grazing acres or eighty acres of hayfield here. How to manage these eighty acres without chemicals? And we called organic farmers and conventional farmers and organizations and asked them all. This was in twenty twelve or twenty thirteen. Asked them all how do we do it, and nobody knew. Nobody could give us a, a good answer. So. Um, it was about then that Alan Savory, the biologist working in Zimbabwe released his Ted talk about um, how to reverse desertification in Africa. And I just stumbled upon it one night um, while bouncing our newborn baby Angus on my knee um, and the desertification and drying and dying soils that he saw in Africa um, with the washouts and the stocky plants and the dirt, rock, sand um, were exactly what we were seeing in our hay fields in, in one of the most verdant ecosystems on the planet. And that's when it clicked for me that the soil was dead and we needed to focus our efforts not on pulling crops out of the ground anymore, but instead on putting carbon back into the ground. And Um, we didn't know how to do that. Alan Savory used livestock. We didn't have any livestock at the time. And we were uh, so averse to having responsibilities at that point that that we didn't even have houseplants. So, um, but we decided looking forward um, that if this is what the ground needed, then we needed to suck it up and try at least. So we, Uh, started with chickens and moved them through the driest patchiest uh, most degraded part of our farm Um, we moved them in a bottomless coop every 12 hours and they did the work of scratching aerating fertilizing covering the soil and um, long story short two months later we the, the grass behind the chickens just came roaring back and we had what looked like a green Mohawk going down through the middle of the farm. And, um, you could still actually see it on the Google space images. If you look at our farm on Google maps, uh, there's this green stripe going down. Um, and we went with chickens because of similar images we had seen of Joel Salatin's farm down in Virginia, where his chicken tractors move through the fields and there's brown ahead and green behind. So, um, we you know, we're doing backflips when we discovered that because this had been 18 months of panic and worry and research and testing. And, and we had finally found something natural that restored the ground. And we thought at worst case scenario, you know, we'll have 50 chickens for the freezer and we'll eat one a week for a year. Um, But people wanted the chickens. So, because they were, pasture-raised, non-GMO, organic, chemical-free birds. Um, so we sold them all, and then we got more, and then we sold all those, and then we got turkeys, and our our system of regeneration just grew and grew and grew to the point where we decided we were going to get a lamb or two to precede the poultry in the rotation, um, just to... Uh, prepare the grass and lay down more carbon for the birds to pick through more manure for the birds to pick through and we said we'll get a lamb or two and the next day a woman knocked on our door and said I need a home for a flock of 60 sheep are you maybe interested and we took a deep breath and jumped in with both feet and that's when our ability to regenerate the land really exploded we went from doing 700 square feet of hayfield a year which is basically a tiny corner of a field to 20 acres in a year uh, because of the um, incredible work the herbivores do in, in gobbling up all the carbon in the form of blades of grass that have you know captured the carbon out of the atmosphere as they grow and then converting it to manure and then tromping it down into the soil where the bugs and worms and everybody can eat it and pull it down further and um you know as you know the waste of the bugs and the worms and everything form carbonic acid which breaks down the sands and the rocks releasing those minerals and nutrients back up to the grasses and it just started this positive feedback loop where the more animals we have on the land the stronger healthier the land became which meant the more animals we could have on the land um so it was an economic and ecological positive feedback loop where um we were spinning in the right direction. We were restoring the carbon cycle, the water cycle on the land. And that was um, economically the right direction. Cause as we grew, the more we produced, the more we could produce. So we're now five years into it. Um, we have sheep, chickens, turkeys, pigs, um, bees, and we produce chicken, turkey, lamb, pork, sheepskins, honey, honey, and we're getting into our next adventure is a perennial food forest. We're dedicating um, four and a half acres of land on the farm that had been clear cut to building a seven layer perennial food forest of root crops, um, spices, herbs, berry bushes, um, flowers, small apple trees, nut trees, and then vining plants that will weave all the way through it with hops and grapes. and and uh, the point of that is to twofold one we want more protein produced here on the farm because it's, it's hard sometimes to feed the omnivores that we have with um, what we grow because especially with annual crops uh, because they require a lot of work and weeding. Um, and we want to build for local uh, for the local area an example of no input um agricultural production where the only work in this forest is maintaining it and harvesting. It's a self-reinforcing system, just like any forest, but this is designed and planted with human edible crops in mind. So, or edible or useful. We can do medicinal medicinal stuff too. So that's where that's where we're aiming. And that's going to be a 20-year project and we're doing that with our with our grandchildren, if we have any in mind. So, um, that's it's been,
0: a, that's a really inspiring journey. I mean, it's come from, from knowing nothing,
1: nothing. Yeah.
0: It being like a source of information and a source of experience. And I hear you, I mean, I see from your website there, uh, Hilda Farm, that you're also doing uh, education on the farm now, and then you have a place for people to come and stay. Can you tell us a little bit about about how that fits into your polycultural strategy?
1: Well, um, first of all, we do a lot of talking, a lot of presentations. Um, I tend to be loud and obnoxious about the things that I learn. Um, Obviously, people have been doing this for decades before us, and we're learning from them, but we're just so excited about the possibility and potential of this form of carbon sequestering food fuel production that um we talk about it a lot and we're we're lucky to be invited to talk about it a lot we have school groups come up often colleges come up often and we give tours of the farm and what i love about that is people step on the farm with the uh assumption that all agriculture has to be destructive that in order for humans to feed themselves we have to degrade nature over time and it just doesn't have to be that way even at um even at populations much larger than the earth has now like this food forest idea has seven layers of food production Um, so those 4.5 acres are going to be producing um an incredible number of calories, and where our hay fields were just producing hay that would go to horses or um, some sort of livestock in the area, we're now producing all that hay plus more hay because the fields are healthier, and lamb, and chicken, and turkey. So we're producing more calories per acre than ever before, um, and it's just. the the system of stacked enterprises, I think that holds real hope for cooling the planet and feeding the planet as the human population grows. So getting that message out there is really one of our, our primary goals with this farm and, um, and helping people find the experts who are doing it better than we are um, and have been doing it longer than we are. And second to that, we have, um, a lot of rentals going up on the farm. One is live now, and we have three more in development. So people can come and stay and experience what it's like to to sequester carbon every day as a job. Um, try the food, and um, but but also, um, practically speaking, food margins are so slim that it's hard with a, a farm of only. Two hundred and seventy five acres and eighty production acres to make a living and support the land and feed a family so these these farm stays are an economic um necessity for a lot of rural farms right now and so you know I joke about if I were to write in a, a letter to young farmers today about how to start a farm, number one would be build your airbnb <laughs> because getting people to the farm is one economically advantageous and two um a a great marketing opportunity to help people understand that food doesn't have to be destructive because people who come here and see it talk to me talk to my wife and then they go back to boston or new york or wherever they've come from and they start looking in their area for regenerative food and carbon farmers in their area and um they may have to drive a while to find them because there are, there are certainly more than there were um, 10 years ago. Um, But they're still kind of few and far between and, but people are looking for it now. And so my hope is that we can figure out good ways to get small farms like ours, um, the ability to get food to marketplace and into grocery stores and, or into co-ops or direct consumers with, with um, urban um, CSA drops or something like this. I I don't think the current food system is going to save us. um, So I'm all for finding ways around it, but those systems now don't exist and it's up to the individual farmers to do all the marketing and packaging and distribution and processing. And, and so I think what's coming soon and what could be a huge opportunity for enterprising entrepreneurs is to build these systems of getting small farms back in the fight and back in the food system.
0: Uh, That's, that's, I think, you know, really, really critical information for people who are thinking of uh, starting into farming. And I know more, Mm. more and more people are attracted to that. And, um, you know the barriers to entry are still somewhat formidable. Um, Jesse, uh, you, you you've spoken before, and the last time we we, we uh, had a conversation a bit about the obstacles.
1: Uh, you mm-hmm. know,
0: you blend in to, um we're trying to enter into this into this sphere. Do you, uh, would you like to elaborate on that a bit?
1: Well, the obstacles are real. Um, land. Access to land is, I think, primary the primary obstacle. Um, one thing we're not making more of is land. And so as um, urban sprawl spreads throughout farmland and we lose acreage to housing developments and malls and everything, that's a problem. Um, but also um, in rural areas where there's land, Um, A lot of it is getting purchased up by second homeowners. And, and even if it's not getting purchased, it's sitting there waiting for a second homeowner to buy it or something like that. So the land prices are out of reach for a lot of people who are coming out of school with, um, without a lot of money and student debt or, or something like that. So getting um, people who want to do this work onto land is, will be key, um, and there are a lot of good people working to do that. I know the Iroquois Valley Farms um, is um, an organization that is finding farmland and, and helping young farmers buy it um, with the stipulation that they do it organically, and um, the I know here locally the Vermont Land Trust is great at pairing... Um, farms that need buyers with young owners and then giving them a really favorable terms on purchase. But land doesn't need to be purchased by the farmer farming it. Um, One of the great things about the system we have here is that it's entirely mobile. And this is based on, you know, Joel Salatin's design of mobile farming, but we can pack up everything here in a day, all our, all our infrastructure here in a day and be on another field tomorrow. Uh, because we use wagons through the fields. We use, um, you know, mobile water tanks. We use portable fencing, which means that any enterprising farmer or would-be farmer can find, you know, land that is just brush hogged twice a year. Um, Out-of-state owners who who pay somebody to brush hog the field could be paying somebody to manage the field and sequester carbon on that field using the livestock. So, um, these sort of, um, innovative deals and in land owner versus uh, landowner and farmer relationships could be, could be key. It could be, you know, I look at things like Uber and Airbnb and these gig economy, um, innovations, there could be something like that for farmers where the people who are just sitting on a whole bunch of land doing nothing with it can make money or pay money, depending on the deal struck, to people who need land. So um, I'm, I'm, <clears throat> again, there's another op- opportunity for entrepreneurs out there. Um, yeah, so... Another barrier to entry is um, the infrastructure is gone. Or I should say that in our area, the infrastructure has shifted out of the Northeast and is now concentrated in the Midwest. So all of the slaughterhouses and um, distribution systems, food distribution systems, are, have been dismantled over the last couple decades. So if here in Vermont, I want to get my food to New York, Um, I have to buy a truck and bring it down, which is the solution that a lot of farmers in this area turn to. Um, So, and the, um, every slaughterhouse in the area, whether it's state inspected or USDA inspected is packed out six months because there are so few and far between. Um, For a few years, I had to drive four hours to get to the nearest poultry slaughterhouse, which meant I was creating birds at two in the morning to get there at seven in the morning. And a lot of people don't want to do that, understandably. Um, And so I'd love to see that infrastructure start coming back, whether it's like a co-op model that owns the, the slaughterhouse and distribution processing system or state run systems, mobile systems, something needs to come back because if we're going to start putting animals back on the land, and reintroducing it, the animals back into the ecosystems that need them. Then we're going to need a way to manage those animals, um, um, process the animals and get them to market. And it doesn't have to be meat. It can be eggs. It can be milk. It can be uh, fiber. Um, But, but even with those um, products, we don't have the right, um, we don't have a, enough, I should say there, cause there are some great facilities, but there aren't enough of them in our area in a lot of areas throughout the country for, um, to help out the number of people we need to get back into doing this.
0: So that's a whole, a whole area that is just screaming for entrepreneurs.
1: It is. Oh man. If somebody came into this town, I don't have time to do it, but if somebody came into this town and opened a tannery or a, Um, fiber processing plant or a, um, egg grading plant or a slaughterhouse, they'd be packed out for a year, um, based on the demand and the overworked butchers in the area. Um, and I've worked with, with great butchers, um, in the area and they all say they have more work than they can stand. So huge opportunity there.
0: So there's a, there was an announcement this week, uh, maybe it was last week, about uh, Rodale Institute coming up with mm. a regenerative certificate. Um, I know you're on top of that too. Uh, what, what do you think that's going to enable?
1: Oh, I love that. I love Rodale and I love um, the fact that they launched the regenerative organic certification program first. Um, a lot of people have been working on it, uh, myself included, over the last few years. And um, I think it's meaningful that it came from Rodale because, as you know, Rodale was um, one of the early founders of the organic movement back in the 1930s. So um, there's been a lot of debate about regenerative versus organic, or how does how what is the relationship between regenerative and organic agriculture? And a lot of people are saying they're one and the same. A lot of people saying they're completely different um, today based on what standards you believe in. But um, having Rodale release the regenerative organic certification program um, really ends that argument because they're, they are the authority on the whole on, um, you know, uh, climate beneficial farming they know how to do it. And, and now they're putting down guidelines for people who are saying, yes, we're organic, but also in addition to organic, we are regenerative. So uh, just very quickly, you know, an organic certification means um, that the farm is using uh, all natural methods, all natural tools, by and large, but doesn't mean necessarily that they're sequestering carbon in their practices. They could till too much and still be considered organic under the USDA program. They could raise birds organically because they feed them organic grain, but the birds never get outside or on soil, Um, meaning that they're not on the ground doing the work of putting the carbon in the ground. So um, what I think that means uh, on a larger scale is Or will have a larger impact is it will bring consumers into the regenerative agriculture movement. This is a a piece that I think we've been missing for a long time. Um, Like I said earlier, people generally don't know that farming and agriculture does not have to be destructive, and in fact, can be. Uh, beneficial to the earth and the climate and the natural systems on it. And once people in the supermarket start seeing the word regenerative food on their, on their labels, you know, they'll have like a industry chicken that was disastrous for the ecosystem. They'll have an organic chicken, which is clean food, um, but may or may not have sequestered carbon. And then they'll have a regenerative organic chicken next to that that they that suddenly gives them the tools they need to fight climate change with their food dollars and i think if you don't have land you can't go out and just sequester carbon or um you don't have a, a regenerative farm near you that you can subscribe to their csa this is a way for people in apartment buildings and in the cities to begin um sequestering carbon through their food dollars you know so um and and that's going to at least in my experience be a huge boon for farmers because as soon as our customers well i shouldn't say that customers our customers have sought us out because they know or learned or came and saw that the way we raise our food is regenerating the ecosystem here on this farm Um, cleaning the water and improving the soil and, and so on. So they're willing to pay a premium and drive, you know, in some cases two hours to come here and get it. So if we're able to get that out in front of people, um, I think it's going to be a, 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 an exciting and, and, and useful tool for farmers who are able to produce it that way.
0: Do you think this is, is kind of registered with the local farmers yet? It's something I it's very new in, in terms of a certification. People talking about it.
1: Um, at least in my area, I can't speak to the whole country, of course, but um, there's been a great conversation raging in Vermont about regenerative agriculture because of the water pollution problems we've been experiencing in this state. Um, <clears throat> Because you may or may not know, Lake Champlain, which is the jewel of Vermont and one of the biggest tourist attractions is starting to experience or has been experiencing algal algal blooms um, because there's too much phosphorus in the lake. um, And people debate the sources of that phosphorus. um, But being a farmer, I think it's pretty clear to see that that the agricultural land around the lake on both sides and up north um, are mostly dairies, mostly conventional dairies, and they spread water-soluble nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium pellets on the ground, which has been tilled and sprayed like ours was for you know decades, onto essentially what is sand and rock that can't hold the nutrients. Some of them go into the plants. Uh, because they're water soluble, the the plants can take them up immediately. But some of them wash down and they end up in the lake. And um, a lot of people are talking about how to clean the lake at the lake level. And a lot of us are talking about what we don't want to treat. We don't want to. Um, we need to solve the problem, not treat the symptoms. So if we are able to restore the soil on these farms through regenerative practices we can rebuild the soil sponge put carbon back in the ground um where when they put down their npk fertilizer or their manure or the animals grazing put down the 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 um nutrients that way the carbon and the biological activity the healthy soil will will capture um, digest and, and hold that water uphill. Um, and you look at farmers who are doing this at scale. There's, um, Gabe Brown in North Dakota, who's doing this on 5,000 acres in North Dakota. And and he'll say over and over, you know, when my neighbors are, are in drought, I'm fine. And when my neighbors are flooded, I'm fine because he's been able to build so much topsoil back on his land using, these these methods of mob grazing and no-till production um, that he has found um, resilience in his land. He's built resilience back into the land. So where so many farmers are chasing predictability through um, industrial methods meaning they, they need to produce a certain amount at a certain time every year. And the way they achieve that is um, erasing all, the, um, erasing all the natural factors that might have an influence one way or the other. So they bring their farms down to sand and rock, and then they add back just what they need, and they can produce a reliable crop that way through industrial methods. Another way to approach that and the way Gabe Brown has approached it and the way we're trying to is to build resilience in so that no matter what the weather is doing any given summer or any given day, um, the resilience in the land is able to cushion that blow and continue to produce a crop. So, um, yeah, so that's... I forget where we started there with the lake, I guess. But um, that's, that's what we're trying to do here is predictability through resilience. And that's going to mean more in the future as the hurricanes start coming up the coast. And, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely.
0: And so and, that, kind of, that brings in that whole topic of, of, of scale. You know, because we're yeah. talking about what you were doing. We're talking about sort of what the community farmers are doing. And and but obviously something like Lake Champlain and the impacts on that. I mean, that's something the state really needs to take an interest in. And I'm oh, absolutely. curious, you know, what what is the state of Vermont doing in terms of supporting regenerative, in terms of supporting the recovery of the soils?
1: Well, I'm really proud of my state. Um two years ago I introduced with my state senator a um and I shouldn't say I, a lot of people worked on this with me. A lot of people are smarter than I am worked on it with me, but um, we introduced a, the first, a bill called the regenerative Vermont's regenerative um, certification program bill. And it didn't get anywhere or very far at all. Um, just procedurally, it was, received well the senators uh, that we talked to were very excited about it um and it sparked a great conversation in the state and we reintroduced another bill last year and again it was a great conversation that we had in the state but everybody's really as far as you know I can tell in here excited about these practices and just trying to figure out how best to incentivize them in the state um and just maybe last month, the Agency of Agriculture Food and Markets, which is our, you know, state department of ag, released what they call the Vermont Environmental Stewardship Program, where they've taken, basically it's a certification program um, run by the state where farmers can voluntarily apply. And if their farm has been proven to meet their um criteria for land regeneration, then they can be certified in the program and put the Vermont Environmental stewardship logo on their products um, and put a sign out front and all these other things and I hope it's just in beta right now, but I hope that that program will grow into something that can be used by the state um to be a useful tool for the state to don't know um, do other things that will incentivize this kind of farming like change um, like change tax rates, give people tax breaks, give people grants um, that sort of thing um, but so so this stuff's coming I know Massachusetts had a bill that was um, up for debate this year Hawaii passed a bill about regenerative farming where they created a statewide fund to incentivize this kind of farming um california is discussing one um so it's starting people are starting to talk about it at the state level and and on the commercial level i know patagonia has a company called patagonia provisions where they make food um, out of regenerative crops whether it's um they make beer out of kernza which is a perennial grain developed by west jackson and the land institute so it's a no-till grain that they can turn into um, products. They they sell jerky, um, and they just started with a special hat, um, a wool cap that's made out of regenerative wool. Um, and let's see. Um, I don't want to get any names wrong here, but um, but but companies are turning to this, and I could list a few, but I would have to be sure I'm right before I start listing off names. But if people go to Google and look for regenerative products, they're going to start finding things now um, from major companies. And I think that's because, you know, in Patagonia's case, they're led by a, by a, um, you know, a genius and they want to do right by the world. But in other cases, the demand for this is growing and it's the smart commercial thing to do. Um, And I mean, you know, on a larger scale, nobody's going to be buying hats if there's no food to eat. So uh, if we degrade all our resources to the point of panic, then we're not going to have a problem with wool hats anyway. So um, so the demand, I think, is growing, and it's really exciting time to be in farming because I see the demand for natural um natural products is growing which a lot of people can still participate in it's not like the industrial industrial product system where there's a where not everybody can get into it from you know from nothing
0: we're going to take a break now so stay tuned we'll be right back designers of paradise is made possible in part by mind and media over the last quarter century the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D. M E D I A dot com, and now back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. We're chatting with Jesse McDougall from Studio Hill Farm in Shaftsbury, Vermont. Jesse, I'm curious. You know we've talked we've talked about things at different levels, different scales here, and obviously to move something like a like a paradigm shift in in how we grow. Mm -hmm and how we interact with the land and that sort of things. You know, that takes a lot of different players. It takes, it takes the involvement of a lot of different sectors. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I mean, it's pretty obvious we need, we need growers and consumers, and we need the markets in between in some cases, and you know, we need people. We talked a little bit about policy and legislation and that sort of thing. Um, clearly, finance is an issue in, in, in terms of getting stuff started very often who do you think is missing from the from the bigger ecosystem of players?
1: Uh, very good question. Um, right now the, the, from where I stand, what I see, the regenerative agriculture movement is peopled yeah. almost entirely by farmers and by advocates, nonprofits and such. Um, What's missing right now are um, the consumers, which I think uh, are headed in our direction um, through things like, through awareness campaigns that the advocates are doing, and they're doing a terrific job spreading the word, Um, but also um, investors. And I think um, for a number of reasons, one, agricultural, Ventures are risky. I get that. They'll be riskier as climate change becomes more of a factor in agricultural production. Um, but I think what we need in order to get investors on board is to prove that this model is economically profitable. And, um, you know, you take a look at Joel Salatin. He's been doing it for decades profitably. Um, Gabe Brown in North Dakota has been doing it for for, I believe, decades profitably. Um, And there are others. There are countless others around the U.S. And just as an example here on our farm, when we transitioned from conventional ag to regenerative ag, uh, we were able to put down the expense of herbicides, pesticides, um, getting the big machines in here to till, disc, plow, reseed every year which is a five-figure expense every year. Um, and we were able to bring in, uh, to do that work of, uh, of fertilization and land improvement, the animals. So now the sheep, the chickens, the turkeys do the work that the machines and the chemicals did, but they do it better with lasting, more lasting effect um, without polluting the land. And they earn us, a, you know, of money on the back end. So we're able to put down the expense of environmental degradation to produce crops and pick up the revenue of environmental regeneration and produce even more crops because we're producing uh, on the same fields where we were just producing hay um, at a tremendous expense. We're now producing more hay using these natural regenerative methods. Um, but on top of that hay, we're also producing lamb and sheepskins we're producing chicken, eggs, turkey um, and and so we're producing far more calories per acre and earning far more per acre using these methods and spending in you know far less per acre um, than we were using conventional methods and You know, people make the argument well, it takes a lot of work to move the animals every day, and um, whereas, you know, calling the chemical truck is one phone call, and you can, um, so, you know, um, you're paying a lot more in labor, and that is true. We're paying a lot more in labor, um, not nearly as much as we were paying in chemicals. Um, So, and I'd much rather spend the money we generate here on jobs in the area than sending that money out of town on a on a truck to the chemical company. So um I think it's just been a win-win-win for us economically and ecologically and as soon as investors see this model works and can work on a 200 you know and some acre farm and on a 5000 acre farm and companies are interested in it with Patagonia Dr. Bronner's um, and, and others leading the way, I think the money will start showing up.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, what you described is essentially a walk-in example of natural abundance.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And how, how we can tip that system back in the direction that that is natural to the planet that we live on. Uh, it's beautiful. It's
1: and the key is, you know, there are, there are I heard this from um, the founder of I think it's Nutiva. Is that the um let me look that up real quick. Yeah, I think so. The um regenerative yes, Nutiva. Um on a podcast he was doing and he said, you know, there are three carbon sinks on planet Earth. There's the atmosphere where it exists as carbon dioxide. There's the ocean where it is exists as carbon carbonic acid, which is the acidification of the oceans, and there is the soil. Two of those carbon sinks are maxed out in the atmosphere and the ocean. one of them is depleted um, and this system of agriculture is in my opinion the the um, clearest most natural and um, fastest way to get carbon out of the atmosphere and out of the ocean and into back into the soil where it has tremendous benefit for not only the atmosphere and ocean but for the soil and the farm food production and the carbon cycle and the water cycle and um i was speaking with a man named walter jenna from healthy soils australia and and he made the point that the most um um the biggest problem we have in the atmosphere is not carbon dioxide or one of the, or methane or, um, or, or other, these other greenhouse gases The the biggest warmer of the planet is the, is the, um, water in the atmosphere. Because, you know, you take the American Midwest, for example, when the sun comes out on a hot day, any, any fallow field without crops in it, um, dries out immediately. Any moisture that was held in the ground comes back up into the air. And if you think about, you know, your bathroom after the shower, it's holding a lot of heat in that room, in that air. If we're able to restore the carbon in the soil, the water will stay in the soil and we can cool the planet rather rapidly. Um, carbon dioxide levels are a different matter, but we can get the temperature down and we can reverse the, um, you know, um, we could slow the, the hurricanes, cool the ocean, um, restore the Arctic and Antarctic and sea ice and everything pretty quickly. And by pretty quickly, I mean um, 20, 30 years, um, if we were able, I mean, that's a, that's a f- kind of a fantasy situation. But logistically, if we're able to get everybody on board, we could do it. Um,
0: it's totally feasible it's literally
1: yeah it's and you know when we started to work here we thought we'd see results in 10 years you know we'd start seeing effects in 10 years we're only five years into it and we have places on this farm where um that were gravel because they were horse paddocks for 30 years and they had been beaten to gravel by the heavy animals with the wide feet and with no seeding, no re, no tilling, just the action of grazing the sheep over it, and we bale grazed one time, meaning we fed out hay on top of the gravel one time, um, we're able to bring it back to lush green abundant grass in one year, literally one season. It was, it was gravel in the spring and lush grass in the, in the fall. And we have pictures of this on the website. Um, so much so that where we had done this for three years, um, feeding bale grazing out only one time in the first year, we are doing the, We had done this three years. I left a water hose running by accident because sometimes I get boneheaded and went away for the weekend. I come back from the weekend and, um, find the water hose running and it was moist ground for about 20 yards out. And then the water had disappeared because the, there was so much organic matter now in the in the ground that it had soaked it all up and dispersed it out through the whole thing. No, I mean, five years ago, leaving that garden hose running would have created a big washout halfway down our, in these ten acres. So, the as soon as we restore the systems, the natural systems under which. The grasses have evolved to thrive. The sheep have evolved to thrive. The bees have evolved to thrive. They come back um, faster than we can imagine. Um, because over the last, you know, 220 million years of herbivore activity on planet Earth, the grasses have been conditioned to thrive under this move, uh, mu- uh, bunch-munch-and-move activity where anything that, any plants that didn't thrive under a system of occasional trampling, grazing, fertilization, and then rest died off. So what we're left with now on planet Earth are a whole bunch of grasses and plants in the grasslands that thrive when they are when they receive that activity. And none of the grasses, almost none of the grasses in on North America right now, receive that activity because they're lawns that get mowed, or they are, or we've moved animals out of the hayfields um and once we restore that activity they take off i mean i had um grass that um was struggling in 2012 to produce much of anything and without seeding just reintroducing this activity to that that land and that grass we were able to get five growths um uh, out of it in a single year and the fifth growth produce grass that was up to my up to my shoulder
0: which is you
1: know five feet up and i can i could pick it up and hold it up and and take their pictures of that on the website um you know lewis and clark i believe it was lewis and clark wrote about when they traveled across the midwest grass so tall that they could tie it in a bow over their laps while they were sitting on the horses and you just don't see grass like that on the continent anymore because of the way we manage our grasses um but the it was the movement of the American bison or buffalo, I'm not sure of the species, but you know the the packs of twenty thousand thirty thousand seventy thousand animals in a in a herd moving eating, defecating trampling moving eating defecating trampling that built that six, eight, 13 feet of topsoil pulling, you know, the grass pulls the carbon out. The animals turn that carbon into manure and then they trample it down. And it's just a, like a, you know, that in that case was a million acres, 10 million acres, whatever um, sheet composting system where layer, layer, green, layer, brown, layer, green, layer, brown, and everything stayed down. And then when we rip our tillers through it, and spray it and turn it over, Um, all that carbon, all that manure and um, rotting leaf material is exposed to the elements, sun, wind, rain, um, which break the carbon molecule off of that organic matter. And it returns, it, it bonds with the O2 in the atmosphere, becomes CO2 and it goes back to the atmosphere. And it's true of every lawn that's mowed in America. You lay those grass clippings out on your lawn and what happens? They turn yellow, dry, brittle, and eventually disappear because they oxidize back to the atmosphere. So it's a it's a zero-sum game in terms of carbon. All the carbon that was captured as the grass was growing is cut and released, dried out, and released back to the atmosphere. Now, if you took all those grass clippings, piled them up, bagged them, piled them up, and put them under a shady tree, they wouldn't disappear. The pile would compost and turn into, you know, it would rot down and be biologically digested by the critters and, and soil microbes that are coming up from the earth. Um, And that carbon that was taken in by the plants as they were growing um, is sequestered and kept out of the atmosphere. And that's all we're doing here on a, on a bigger scale. And that's all Gabe Brown is doing on a massive scale. Is, is making sure that the carbon that is captured as the plants grow is returned to the earth and not oxidized back to the atmosphere through tillage, through um, letting plants die standing, you know, letting grass die standing. Um, and that's what Alan Savory is doing in in Africa and um, the grasslands around the world. That's what he's teaching is, is use the animals to grab the carbon and put it back in the soil and then let that ground rest. Um, so that's um, – I mean, this can be done – this can be done around the globe. I mean, grass is grass and grass is everywhere. Um, in the – in the, and, it, you know, and in the forests, we can get into tree crop production and that kind of thing. Um, we can get into no-till vegeta- vegetables. So um, there are a lot of ways to farm um, – using methods that return carbon to the soil and and people are looking for them now more than ever and um Rodale actually released this tagline that I love it said fight it with farming talking about climate change fight it with farming and and it's a pretty simple shift honestly if here in Vermont um where we have a dairy industry that keeps cows inside in the barn on the cement slabs um, and keeps fields outside the barns in corn, growing corn to bring into the barns, um, using chemical production, um, if we just simply let the cows out of the barn onto the grass or planted the cornfields back to grass and, and mob graze them in a way that brought the grass back stronger and stronger and stronger every, with every pass, we could have a carbon sequestering dairy industry in the state in, you know, in as few years as it takes us to transition, you know, to like just logistically get the fences in place and the cows out of the barn. Um, And people will argue, well, the corn produces more calories than, so I can have more cows on fewer acres and, and that sort of thing. But in our experience, when that's true, if we're feeding, if we're growing hay conventionally and then feeding it to our sheep, um, then yes, there is a very low upper limit to what grass can sustain. But, like I said earlier, the field that produced five growths of five foot tall grass it wasn't five foot tall in the first growth, but you get my point. Um, the grass can do things that most of us aren't familiar with. <laughs> and if we restore, the prehistoric systems that grass evolved under, then it can do things we haven't seen in the last 200 years and can sustain um, many, many more animals than we think it can. Um, when we started with sheep, I thought we'd get to hundred sheep and the land could sustain a hundred sheep. We're now at 200 sheep and we have, from where I stand and what I know now, uh, we could go up to 500 sheep without, without, um, hitting our upper limit because of the way in the last five years, the grass has responded to the treatment. You know, we're now um, producing so far and beyond what we thought we could that um, the number of animals we can have here on the farm is beyond whatever I first imagined.
0: That's absolutely beautiful. We're going to have to wind up here. Um, is there anything like a last message you'd like to, 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 out to our listeners for this episode
1: oh absolutely um and we would we would love to have
0: you have you back and and you know continue this conversation
1: well i appreciate the opportunity i think the last thing i want to leave with people is the simple message that i learned this um through reading interviewing people or calling people that i didn't know uh, who had been doing it youtube videos um There's some great information out there. You don't need to come from farming. It actually probably helps you if you don't, because you're not, um, your head isn't full of a whole bunch of stuff that you think is right and may not be right. Probably some of it is right, whatever. But I had to start at absolute zero. I had to Google what is grass and figure out what grass was, you know. Um, And going back to nothing really helped me um, On be, begin to understand how to grow grass and how to manage grass and and um, what grass wanted not what uh, you know come at it from a soil level so some names people should know and these are the people that i i look up to and follow and learn from are um the people i mentioned alan Savory, gabe brown joel salatin but also um elaine ingham christine jones um Wes jackson um, Eric Tonesmeyer, um, but, and look on our website, Farm. We have a learn page on there where I've listed a whole bunch of people that I've found to be really inspiring and knowledgeable and leading the, I should mention Ray Archuleta, um, uh, leading the, the movement. Um, so get out there, Google, start learning. The, the future is unwritten and we can write it. And, and it's time to begin managing the ecosystems that we need to sustain life here on earth.
0: That's been a really inspiring interview. Um, and if people want to get in touch with you, they can do that through the website.
1: That, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Studio hill. Very basic. And um, if you want to continue uh, following our, our uh, series of podcasts, you can check on our own website, which is www.rasa.ag. And thanks a million for the, for the really, really interesting hour. And um, I wish you all the best. and We'll be talking again.
1: Thank you so much. I had a blast. Okay, take care, Jesse.
0: Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag r-a-s-a dot a-g. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's g-r-e-e-n underscore h-e-a-r-t, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.